Hello, and welcome to PCSJ Beyond the Article. I'm Julia Largent, the managing editor of Popular Culture Studies Journal. Today's episode features Liz Faber and her article, Augmenting Human Pedagogy, A Cultural History of Automation and Teaching, found in Volume 9, Number 1, which is a special issue edited by Liz on robots and labor in popular culture. Dr. Liz W. Faber is an assistant professor of English and Communication at Dean College, the author of the new book, The Computer's Voice, From Star Trek to Siri, recent guest editor for the PCSJ special issue on robots and labor, and the current special issue editor for PCSJ. Her research areas include science fiction, science communication, computer history, feminist and queer media studies, psychoanalytic film theory, and American film and television studies. Hope you enjoy the episode. All right, uh, today with us we have Liz Faber. Liz, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I am Liz Faber. I am an assistant professor of English and Communication at Dean College. Um, my research focuses on representations of artificial intelligence in science fiction and gender, sexuality, computer history, um, and American film and television more generally. Uh, when you're not researching all of these wonderful things that you just listed, what are some <laughs> of your hobbies? What do you like to do outside of academia? Um, well, I like to sew. That's the biggest hobby that I have. I make clothes. Um, I am very into fashion. I, I love clothes and thinking about outfits and shoes and things. So I, I make all my own clothes. Well, not all my own clothes, but I'm getting there. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> As most academics know, our life is sort of taken up by reading and writing and watching. And when you're a, a media scholar, everything you do is potentially going to be an article. Yes. <laughs> you can't even enjoy the things that other people enjoy for fun because it. I know. I know. <laughs> it's all. At some point, I'm going to start writing about fashion, and it's going to be over. <laughs> How did you get into, you say you like fashion. How did you get into sewing your own clothing? Like, did you grow up knowing how to sew or did you teach yourself or? No, I am completely self-taught um, about a year ago before the pandemic started. So even before that, my mom gave me a sewing machine like 10 years ago and I never touched it. It sat in the box for many, many years. And then like a year ago, I was like, maybe I should try this thing. That seems cool. So I did. I bought a bunch of fabric and I made a very small purse. And I was like, this is great. And then the pandemic happened. And I was like, oh, I should make masks. That's a good idea. Um, and the process of making a lot of masks kind of got me into it and got me comfortable with my sewing machine. Um, and then I just started looking up, like, how do you make a skirt? How do you make a top? Um, and I draft all my own patterns. So mm. it's fun. It's like a little puzzle that I can put yeah. together. Yeah, I can totally see that. Um, that's fantastic. I, I have a good friend here who, who sews a lot and I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> like I, I learned, I, mean, like I feel school. the same way about other arts that I'm like, I look at a painting and I'm like, how does your brain work that way? <laughs> right. Right. I learned how to like set up a sewing machine in like seventh grade. And I don't remember any of that now, but I know it was complicated and there was a bunch of things that went different places. And, mm -hmm. um, that skill did not remain with me, but you know, plain mash that stuck with me from middle school. <laughs> um, so you talked a little bit, but tell me more about your background. How did you get into popular cultural studies? Because it's it's a field that a lot of us kind of stumble into. We don't necessarily mm -hmm. go into undergrad 
with that in mind. So how did you kind of come into this world? I also sort of stumbled into it. Um, so I started, well, I started in forensic science um, and it turns out I'm bad at science, but <laughs> great at writing. So then I became an English major and I immediately in the switch, I was like, okay, I was going to go to medical school. Now I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to be a professor. And I started taking classes in Russian um, and I minored in Russian in undergrad. And so I wanted to do comparative literature. Um, and that was the original idea when I started my master's in English. And then about halfway through, I realized every paper I wrote was about movies for TV. And I was like, hmm, that's telling me something that <laughs> this probably literature is wonderful and I do write about it, but that, that doesn't need to be my central focus. So then when it was time, I decided to go from the master's straight into the PhD, um, but I bombed the GREs, absolutely bombed them. And I was like, I'm not taking the subject test. That cannot happen for me. Um, and, and testing is very anxiety producing for me. So, but media studies programs didn't require a subject test for the GRE. Um, and I had a perfect score on the writing portion, which I was like the thing that I think got me into grad school. So I, I went off and did my PhD in mass communication and media arts at Southern Illinois University. And it was wonderful because I could sort of draw from everything. I had professors who came from a literary background, but also professors who came from a more traditional social science communication background. So it was wildly interdisciplinary and really let me kind of bring in all of my different interests. And then I got really into Star Trek. And so that just sort of started my journey into science fiction studies. So Star Trek was your catalyst to robots then? It was, yeah. I At, at a certain point uh, during my PhD, Siri came out um, for iPhone 4S. And I was like, weird, why Siri a lady? That's a bummer. <laughs> hey, in Star Trek, there's this lady who's a computer voice and that's cool. And that just like blew up my brain and that became the subject of my dissertation and then the subject of my first book. So it all just kind of went from there. Did you ever see the the movie Her? Was it with Joaquin yes. Phoenix? Did, yeah, my last chapter about is that about that film. Um, I've never actually seen it. I just remember it happening and being very intrigued by it and then I never saw it. <laughs> oh, go see it. It's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> And a little disturbing, but also fabulous. So you um, recently, I guess, edited a special issue for PCSJ about robots and labor. So can you talk about what that means? Like, what, what did you do in that role? And how did you go about actually putting together this issue? Absolutely. So it sort of started when uh, the PCSJ Twitter account posted something about, hey, we need guest editors for special issues. Here are some potential subjects. So I went and looked through the list and there was one that was broadly about robots. Um, and at the time I was teaching a course, or maybe I had just finished teaching a course on representations of AI in science fiction. Um, it was a freshman seminar. And one of the kind of subtopics that we covered was whether robots will replace workers in the workforce. And that's a huge source of anxiety in robot fiction. Um, so I thought that would be cool to kind of explore. And, and the whole concept of labor, you can really push that into really interesting directions. You can think of it as like factory workers, or you can think of labor as like giving birth, or like there's so many different definitions to it that I thought it would be cool to just see what scholars come up with. So I contacted the, the editor, Carrie Lynn, and said, hey, here's this thing that I'm interested in. What do you think? Um, I have a background in writing and I teach writing. 
So even though I've never like edited anything, I am good at working with writers and with keeping people on a deadline. Um, so she said yes. And I put together my call for papers with help. I, I just sort of, you know, used a template that I'd seen floating around, then sent it out into the world and people responded and sent me some really amazing proposals. I think I got like 25 or 30 proposals. Um, and I only accepted 16 because they wanted, I, I looked back at what the, the previous um, special issues had been, and that was roughly where they were. So I went with the 15 that sort of fit my vision the most and sort of fit the theme the most and, and didn't really overlap with each other. Um, there were some that were like, oh, okay, clearly this topic is present in the moment that like kind of everybody's writing about it. And so I sort of narrowed it down to what are the interesting strands that people are finding here. Um, go ahead. So I ask if there were any papers that blew you away that you had never thought about what they were writing about? Yes. Um, I mean, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, one that stands out is um, Colleen Edmonds essay on robots in uh, the Star Wars universe. Um, after I posted the call, she DM'd me on Twitter and was like, hey, I kind of have this idea, but I'm not really sure. And I was like, yes, please run with it. That sounds awesome. And, and so her essay is about sort of the shifting treatment of robots over time in Star Wars and how they sort of start as slaves. And as the brand and the franchise developed over time, particularly after Disney bought it out, robots became more human and, and were granted more rights in the Star Wars universe. And I had never thought of that. Like I'm, I'm tangentially a Star Wars fan. I'm not a super fan, but I've seen all the movies and I love them. And it just had never occurred to me. So it, and it's so obvious when you point it out and her essay just yeah. blew me away. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking when BB-8 came out with the newer series of just the automatic cuteness we had toward it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's just, it's so cute. Like, I remember seeing just a post the other day of, uh, I'm the same way with Star Wars. I enjoy Star Wars, but I don't, I don't go further than that with it. But a lot of my friends are huge Star Wars fans. So I'm, my Facebook feed is always scattered with, you know, Star Wars memes and gifts and everything. And there was one the other day about R2-D2 and, and BB-8. I just said, they're like, oh, they're so cute. Like, oh, <laughs> and I wonder yeah. if, you know, it's, I've always thought about the same thing with Pikachu from Pokemon of what is it about this being that doesn't exist in real life you know to my knowledge Pikachu does not exist <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I want Pikachu to exist because that sounds a little terrifying but <laughs> what is it about robots that we can think of it as cute is it the humanization of it is that what pulls us in to think oh BBA is adorable or do you have any idea with that yeah so there's been quite a lot written about it um I've written a, a good bit about this in my book, um, The Computer's Voice. Um, there's also a book that came out recently by Laura Voss. It, essentially, her argument is we, the anthropomorphization of machines is slippery, and, and we do it linguistically um, in the way that we think about them and interact with them, and calling them cute or you know, anthropomorphizing them doesn't necessarily mean that we consciously think of them as sentient beings with rights. 
Um, but it's it's sort of a shorthand that makes interacting with machines easier. Um, and I talk about this a lot in my book in terms of the way that machines are placed into pre-existing roles in film and television. Um, so for example, the Star Trek computer is um, played by a woman, Majel Barrett, and plays the role of a secretary. So these are very clear gendered roles that already existed before the text was created. And I think something like BB-8 or um, R2-D2 fulfills that same need. They're like the cute sidekick that would be played by something like like an animal, right? That's not necessarily human, but like is the fun little magical friend of the, the main character. So as we kind of tilt more toward the issue, you yourself wrote an article for the special issue. Can you talk about what that article is and kind of give a quick summary of it for those who haven't read it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my article is about um, automation in the classroom sort of teaching as labor, but teaching as potentially automated labor. Um, and it, so I start out with some computer history and thinking about the 1950s and 1960s during the Cold War, when in the US, there was this tension between the development of computers and thinking about automation felt dehumanizing and felt like it stripped us of our individuality. And in the US, the a central part of American identity is individualism. And so there's that part, but that sits in tension with the Cold War need to develop amazing technology that would just blow away the Soviet Union and keep us in power over them. So there were all these arguments about, well, we need for kids to understand technology and to be working with computers and to be working with STEM in particular, because we need to beat the Soviets. And that's what's going to help us do it. But then there were all these fears about if we put computers in classrooms, won't that just strip children of their individuality? Um, so I started thinking about that. And, and there are some texts that sort of explore that idea. So in the article, I look at the Jetsons from the 1960s, the animated series. Um, there's a robot named Miss Brainmocker in that. Um, and then I look at um, this film that's like, campy B-movie horror movie kind of thing um, from the 80s called The Class of 1999, um, which is about a corporation that invents teacher robots um, and sends them into the school. So it's like a post-apocalyptic world um, where basically like there are no laws and the kids are all run rampant and in gangs and doing drugs and things. And so these teachers come into the school to try to like brutalize them into being good people. Um, but because of American individualism, a couple of teens rise up and fight back. And so like, they are the heroes of the story. Um, and then finally, I look at this short story, Gus, um, by Jack McDevitt, that is about a seminary school um, where there's this AI that's supposed to teach students about the, the philosophy and theology of St. Augustine. And um, he becomes sentient and sort of takes on its own personality and becomes best friends with um, this kind of curmudgeon at the, the seminary school. And um, so at that point, it kind of moves beyond its original programming out of the educational setting and into sort of teaching this guy about what it really means to be human. So there are these kind of three distinct representations that I look at that sort of continuously battle that tension between 
American individualism and the need to develop technology in order to kind of keep us at the forefront of things globally. What was your starting point? Where did you first start? Like when, you know, when did you choose your three and which one came first? And, you know, how did you start writing this article? Yeah, so I uh, was originally not going to write an article for the special issue. I just wanted to edit it because I thought that would be enough work with organizing peer review and, and copy editing and that kind of thing. Um, but then a couple people dropped out and I was like, okay, well, I have this idea. Because um, they're the story got, I used to teach that story um, to think about kind of the, the ethics of AI and, and spirituality and that kind of thing. Um, so that plus COVID sort of sent me on this journey of, okay, we're all feeling like robot teachers right now. Um, yes. Because suddenly all of us had to be teaching from home and teaching online and, and it felt very distanced for a lot of us. Um, and that was sort of the conversation that was happening online about pedagogy was how do we keep ourselves from feeling like robots? So that then transitioned into, okay, let me look at whatever texts I can find that are about robot teachers. Um, and these three were kind of most prominent that I looked at. And from there, I dug into some of the history and was like, oh, all right, all the dominoes are falling into place now. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and so it just sort of came together from there. It's funny when I was reading your article, I remember the Jetsons, but I could not have told you the robot's name. I remembered her role. I remembered what she did. I remember she was kind of stern, but I could not have told you her name. And so when you when you were like, oh, Miss Brainmonker, I was like, oh, I had you kind of talk about how it's kind of a play on that it's, you know, it's mocking the brain, if you will. I mean, there was another name that you kind of likened it to in the article and it just made so much more sense. It was like, oh, okay. But when you're like five and you're watching the Jetsons, <laughs> that doesn't come together. You just think, oh my goodness, there's flying cars and everything along those lines. And I also kept thinking about, um, I'm a huge Futurama fan. And so just how robots are in Futurama and how, how they kind of play with, with AI in a way that makes them even more human. So like Bender is only sober essentially. Like when he's sober, it's a bad thing. And, <laughs> and he gives birth at one point and it's just, it's, it's interesting how humanized they've made robots that I've never really thought about within that that show, um, and yet they're still very robotic at the same time. Um, so it's it's an interesting world. So your article focuses on both the history of robots and of teaching. You kind of go into the pedagogical aspect of it, um, both in real life um, and in pop culture. Uh, so do you ever think there will be a day that we go 100% automated teaching? Um, and has COVID, you already referenced this a little bit, but has COVID helped or hurt that endeavor? And this is kind of coming out, the beginning of the article, you talk about how robots don't have the same emotional intelligence that humans do. So like if I have a student who's having a bad day and that means that their speech is going to be poor, then I might grade a little easier. If I know something is going on in their life that makes them, so they turn a paper in late, I will allow that versus a robot would be more, you know, black and white cut dry type of deal do you think that robots could ever advance to that fact where they have that emotional intelligence i do um i think and i talk a little bit about this in the article as well the advancements in social affective robotics right now is amazing um and i i do acknowledge that culturally we have especially in the u.s um, less so in other areas of the world like japan um, but in the U.S., we have this kind of techno fear because we keep seeing robots like the Terminator that are terrifying. Um, but 
the the sort of new strain of research where we have robots that can respond to emotional cues, um, particularly with children, and and can be implemented as tutors. Um, I think is really important and is going to do a lot for the educational industry and for the healthcare industry. I don't think that robots will ever fully replace teachers or healthcare workers. Um, I do think that both of those industries are broken in the U.S. Um, and that concerns about human labor rights are forcing conversations about things like, okay, if we can implement robots to distribute medications, what does that free up in terms of time for a nurse? Is that going to help fight burnout? Same thing with teaching. If we can implement robots that would um, do some one-on-one -on -one tutoring and help students build social affective skills along with language skills, what can that free up the teacher to be doing in the classroom? Um, and so I think I, I'm sort of aligned with some of the, the older um, robot ethicists in that robotics are amazing as, as a helper to humans. I don't think they should ever fully replace them. We've seen the destruction that they can do in the manufacturing industry, um, not literal destruction, but destruction to the oh, workforce. God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Because you know that's where those jobs went is they were automated, and so I think that we need to proceed with caution, um, but also make sure that robotics teams have ethicists on them so that um, you know folks like me can help them think through what are the implications of your work what are the historical fears and anxieties that you will need to address through this work how does one become a robot ethicist <laughs> um i became one accidentally <laughs> <laughs> i started studying science fiction and then started reading robot ethics work and then just sort of built it into all of my research it's one of those things that like i i am a proponent of this and a lot of other ethicists and humanities scholars in particular are proponents of making sure that science teams have someone from the humanities this is not popular in science um, because it's like an extra step for a research team that they have to go through. Um, but it, you know, will produce better science. Um, is it the line? It's helpful to have a writer on board. Yeah. The, <laughs> is it the line from Jurassic Park of you? You were so focused on whether you could, you never asked if you should. Exactly. And yeah. I. Yeah. <laughs> Humanities for the win. So what's next? What are you working on now? Are you working on anything? Oh, I'm working on too many things right now. Right. <laughs> um, so I am currently the um, special issues editor for PCS Day. So I'm sort of behind the scenes helping facilitate special issues. And that's a slow process. So that that's sort of a fun Zen thing that I get to do in terms of copy editing and, and helping folks through it. I'm also working on a couple of shorter chapters for um, various edited collections. I have one that's going to be in a collection on death and the supernatural and gender. And my essay is going to be about the Korean film Doomsday Book. So that should be fun. And then I have another one that is based on my PCA paper from this year. Um, that's about uh, the TV show The Good Place. And I'm looking mm -hmm. at reboot and 
rebirth philosophy and sort of putting those two things together with Janet and Derek yeah. in that show. I wouldn't even think about Janet. Yeah, like right? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm saying. All I do is watch TV and I'm like, I should write a paper about this. I should write a paper about this. <laughs> right, I do it too, just not with robots. And so I'm just thinking of like, I didn't even think about Janet. Janet is even better example than Bender because Janet looks like a human. She's constantly saying, I am not a human. I am not a girl. Like and the reboot stuff when she's like begging them to not kill her, but really it's okay. But like, yeah, it's, that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you can look for my chapter. Yeah, I'll look for that. That's exciting. Um, um, what, what do you think is the future of pop culture and robots? Mm. Ooh, I don't know. Um, I think that we sort of go in cycles with it a little bit in terms of, are we scared of technology or do we love technology right now? But we're in a really interesting moment right now. Science fiction's goal is always to tell stories about what's happening right now and to sort of set today's issues in a world of dreamy, nifty technology. And so I'm really interested in some of the newer texts like the film Her that are taking technology we really have now and dreaming up the ethical implications of it for us. So I think that's really the future of it is to think about the disembodied tech that we have like Siri and Alexa. And I assume that much of the direction is going to be about um, neoliberalism and the kind of corporatization of everyday life that what does it mean that Alexa lives in our home and reports what we say to Amazon <laughs> um, and, and sort of how does that surveillance state play out? Um, I, I can envision some really interesting and terrifying science fiction about that. I keep thinking back to um, the 2000s Disney original movie of Smart House. Um, I also write about that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, about how just like the house takes over and it's been so long since I've seen the whole movie, like the movie, but like they, she ends up taking over the house. And um, I keep thinking of every time I really want a smart thermostat to help with energy costs and everything. And every time I'm like, do I really want a smart item in my house? Because <laughs> I, I hope my parents don't listen to this podcast, but at one point they each independently gave me an Alexa, a, a, an Echo, <laughs> and I will not use it because I don't feel comfortable with it. So I just have two of them sitting in my apartment. And one of them, I, I taped a little uh, picture of Hell 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey onto it. And I just keep it on a bookshelf. That's fantastic. <laughs> my parents got given a Google Home or something. And it we're an Apple family. And for the most part, nothing works with it to our knowledge. And so it just sits in a box on the shelf. <laughs> All right, one last question about robots. Do you have a favorite pop culture robot? And if so, who or what? Or I don't know the correct question of that. Well, your difficulty in forming the question is the point of most of my research. So I appreciate that that's still a question. Um, I, it's a toss up for me between the Star Trek Enterprise computer, because that's where all of this started for me. And so she will always occupy a special place in my heart. Um, but also the film Robot and Frank um, is one of my absolute favorite films of all time. It's beautiful. Um, and the robot in that is, so the, the film is about um, this older man who um, has dementia and is sort of having difficulty taking care of himself. 
Um, so his kids buy him a robot helper to sort of make sure he eats and takes his medication and that stuff. Um, but it, it turned out that the man used to be a jewel thief. And so he convinces the robot to help him plan one last heist. Hmm. Um, and it's, it, it sounds so goofy, but it's really a beautiful film. Um, and the robot is modeled after the Honda Asimo robot, um, which is a real robot, and voiced by Peter Sarsgaard. Um, so it's it's really endearing and sort of always leaves me kind of a blubbering mess even when I show it in class. Um, but I, I think it's one of the most quietly powerful um, fictional robots. Shifting slightly, you have a decent following on Twitter. Um, and I'm just curious of how you built that audience, what you do with that audience. Uh, do you, you know, thinking of now versus maybe when you started Twitter, do you behave differently on it? Do you interact with it differently? Um, what are some difficulties or challenges, but also what are the benefits of it, of having that audience? Yeah, so I have uh, almost 8,500 followers right now, um, which in Twitterville is not that many. Um, anybody who's not on Twitter, <laughs> anybody who's not on Twitter looked at that number and they're like, what are you doing with your life? Um, <laughs> so I, I got on Twitter initially right after the 2016 election in the U.S. Um, because like many of us, I wanted to tune in and make sure that I was politically active and um, could do everything I could do to make things better in our country. So, so for like a year or two, maybe three, um, I had like 80 followers and, and basically all I did was just read politics and argue with strangers, um, <laughs> which is what Twitter's for, <laughs> I think in part. Um, and then I went to PCA in, I want to say 2019 um, and decided I would live tweet all the sci-fi area sessions. And within two weeks had hundreds of followers. And so it, it was just, it became this process of like, I shifted into academic Twitter um, and started building a network that way slowly over time. Um, and I really became more myself on Twitter after that than anything else. And I think that in large part is why I have so many followers because I am not a robot. <laughs> I um, talk about things like my cat and um, my life and how academia fits in with my life. And my, I am very passionate about queer rights and women's rights. And so I'm also arguing with strangers quite a bit, but it's, it's become much more of a community for me that I'm participating in. Um, I've also made some of my best friends in the world on Twitter. <laughs> so um, it, it's a place where sort of networking and socializing can combine in really powerful ways. And that's the wonderful part of it. The challenging part is obviously the trolls are very frightening. And there's always an anxiety about how my employer is going to react to my Twitter feed. Um, but I have been very fortunate to always work for schools that um, have a social justice mission and are very supportive of my work in queer studies and gender studies and are comfortable with their faculty being activists. So I'm very fortunate in that way. I know that not everybody is. Um, so I acknowledge that. And I do acknowledge that people have really lost their jobs, um, especially during COVID, because they've spoken out against their institutions. 
that's kind of the fine line that we have to walk as academics and as public intellectuals is how much of our work is controversial and how much of it is going to make people uncomfortable. I personally am like, make everybody uncomfortable because we need to be <laughs> until we fix things. <laughs> right. If you're comfortable, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't realize you were that new. That makes me even more sad that I've been on Twitter for like a decade. And I have <laughs> Why well, else? I spend an outrageous amount of time on there. I am extremely online. Is how people describe me. Yeah, I go. I I feel like you can. I'm on Twitter frequently, but you can always tell when I'm writing or when I'm like working on stuff because that's when I'm even more uh, proliferant on on Twitter. Is there's just more tweets that come out of me whenever I'm working on stuff, and so yeah, yeah. Same. <laughs> I like using Twitter as sort of a. Um, uh, it keeps me honest while I'm writing that I'll sort of report in with people and say, okay, I have great 2000 words today. Here we go. And I, they, you know, are following my progress. And yeah, it's like the accountability buddy. Yeah. 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 One last question for you. Um, what is one piece of advice that you have for young pop culture scholars? Don't listen to those people who say that what you study isn't worth studying. Um, that was, especially as somebody in science fiction studies, when I talk about it, I get two reactions. One is, really? Why? And the other is, um, oh, I didn't know that women like science fiction. So, <laughs> those, and, and I get that frequently, mostly from people outside of academia. Um, but what we do is important because we study culture. You know, pop culture is culture. And our job as academics and as scholars is to figure out who we are as a people and who we want to be and how to connect those dots and to, to see whether our pop culture is getting us there. Um, and, and how we started and where we are now and where we're going in the future. And I think that that's what makes our work valuable. So don't ever let go of that. I would also say it's going to take time to really figure out who you are as a scholar, and that's okay. I did not think that I was a science fiction scholar until like five or six years after I finished my PhD. I thought I was a film scholar who studied gender and psychoanalysis and sound. And then I was working on my first book and realized, oh, actually, <laughs> that is not my niche. My niche is AI and science fiction. And that really opened up my career for me. So it's okay if you don't know what you're doing or where you're going right now. Just keep going. Thank you so much, Liz. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Absolutely. You can find me everywhere on the interwebs. I am on Twitter at LizWFab. You can also visit my website, LizWFaber.com, and you can contact me through there. Thank you so much, Liz. And you can find me at on Twitter at Julia Largent, which is my first and last name. Um, I look forward to the next conversation with our next author. And again, thank you so much, Liz. Um, thank you. All have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast to stay up to date with our episodes. If you have any questions or would like to connect with PCSJ, check us out on Twitter at the PCSJ. You can also find more information on our website, mpcaaca.org, and then navigate to the PCSJ tab on the menu. Thanks for listening.